I have somebody that I knew once I listened to him speak that I knew that you had to meet because he, while he's here in Arizona where I am, he's talking about issues that absolutely affect us nationally. He was, uh, he was in army intelligence, he's been a prosecutor and now he is running for attorney general of Arizona on the Republican side. Abe Hamaday, welcome to the program. Thank you, Matt. It's good to be with you. So you have had uh, quite a career, um, even you know, and you're you're a pretty young guy. Um, so talk just a, a little bit about your career in the Army Reserves and uh, and also your time as a prosecutor in Maricopa County, Arizona. Sure. So I was a prosecutor in the Maricopa County Attorney's Office, you know, which is you know infamous all around. Um, but you know, out there is really. You know, really, prosecutors are great because, you know, you actually go to court every day and, you know, you're actually prosecuting criminals. And my jurisdiction that was actually downtown Phoenix um, area, downtown Phoenix and South Mountain. So <clears throat> there's a lot of homeless, actually. And with that, there's a lot of mental illness, obviously, and a lot of drugs. Um, so, you know, really interesting crimes that you see, especially in the downtown area. You know, sometimes I would laugh about, sometimes I prosecute some folks and the judge releases them and I bump into them at lunchtime, right? Because they're right there in the in the lunch hour with the, uh, you know, if they're from downtown and that's where our office was. Um, but also as an army intelligence officer and captain, and I just got back from a 14 month long deployment to Saudi Arabia, which was really interesting. I was in charge of the training out there in the Saudi Arabia for their special security forces and their facility security forces with the Ministry of Interior. Um, so I was in charge of training in country as well as sending Saudis um, to the United States for training. And with that, you know, you may or may not remember the Pensacola 2019 oh, terrorist yeah. Yeah. So we had to implement the, I was in charge of implementing the new enhanced security vetting guidelines for the sending any of these Saudis to the United States. Um, and that new program that I led actually is now worldwide. Um, so it, it required biometrics, you know, which obviously gets run through our intelligence and um, law enforcement um, centers, as well as it was really exhaustive background checks. You know, if anybody in the federal government knows an SF-86 is very similar to that, but on, you know, dealing with the Saudi side. And you know, now it is implemented worldwide to hopefully prevent another terrorist attack like that happening again. But um, all around very, very interesting deployment, especially the time I was there it was July 2020. So obviously a lot of, you know, a different president came on board. Um, the Saudi relationship has changed a little bit with the United States, but you know, I got back here in September and decided to run for Arizona Attorney General in November. So, wow, that is a that's a, a big office that you decided to run for. And, I, and I've got to tell you, what initially piqued my interest about you was one of the primary um, issues that you're running on is the war on cops. Can you can you talk about what that means to you and to your candidacy? Well, it's pretty personal to me in the sense that I've, I noticed, you know, back during COVID times in March 2020, we all remember these times. I mean, you know, there's so much going on with the COVID and then also the, the riots that were going on. I was at Scottsdale Fashion Square here in Arizona when, you know, the BLM, the George Floyd riots were going on. And, you know, just to see that, you know, law enforcement be, you know, characterized as evil. And it, what was going on for me, what I saw was it was turning into Gotham City. And many of these cases, these politicians just 
you know, turn their backs on law enforcement. And what you saw was lawlessness. And I mean, there's so many counts of horrific, you know, incidents. Um, you know, I forgot the retired police officer, I think police chief uh, Dorn, I think his name yeah, is David, David Dorn. Dorn. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it was just awful what was going on at that time. And, you know, to see as a prosecutor too, I mean, I know, you know, I'm not a police officer, but I know what they go through, right? I mean, I, I'm here, I am watching the body cams here. I am, you know, interacting with them. And a lot of the public just doesn't understand what law enforcement goes through on every on a daily basis. And, you know, I mentioned this the other day, but, you know, people always thank me for my military service, which is awesome, right? It's, it's a great thing for us to be patriots and thank our men and women who are service members who have served in, um, overseas. But, you know, our law enforcement, they go to war every single day and they don't know whether they're coming home. And for me, it's, you know, I take that very seriously. And right, you know, that whole idea after 9-11 where we actually revered our law enforcement and respected them. And now it's turned into, you know, where people openly criticize them and defund them. But what's worse is what I've been seeing across the country is the demoralization of the police officers. And I'm so glad you, you brought that up because that's exactly what we are seeing around the nation is this vilification of a, a profession and for no reason, you know, for, for uh, you know, every single cop in the nation is not Derek Chauvin. And uh, um, we have been vilified and lied about for the, for the last almost two years now. Right. And, uh, and that does beat down uh, emotionally those cops. And we are, we are, I know, for example, here in Arizona, um, two, uh, two of our largest police departments, Phoenix PD and Tucson PD, are both horrifically shorthanded. And, and it's getting, you know, we're getting to a critical point, not just here in Arizona, but around the country where we don't have enough cops to do the job. Right. It's, it's scary what's going on. And, you know, we can pinpoint this to many things, but I mean, it all starts off with the the attack of our of our loss and you know george soros actually has been planning a lot of this i mean he's been going after prosecutors trying to put liberal prosecutors in place so you know this the law, i think phoenix is short 800 police officers right now and we just have to think about you know the retention right i mean after 9-11 there was a big you know a lot of people want to join the police force which is great and now a lot of them are retiring i mean they're they're reaching their 20-year mark and you know what incentive do they have to stay when their own city council or mayors are after them so there's going to be a big shortage coming up even more um across the country but you know it, it really is worrisome i mean for me you know when I, was, when I was out in saudi arabia i was training this ministry of interior right they're the saudi domestic forces but within the ministry of interior they also have their police force see in a country like that it's all nationalized right, right. in the united states people don't you know get how special we are everything is so localized we have city uh police we have share county sheriffs you know then we have state troopers right so it, it's complicated and you know, I really worry what the end game is when we have all these shortages, like what's the next step? Is it higher pay for police? And if that's the case, you know, we all love higher pay for our police officers, but we also question who's joining the police force at that time, because so many that join, you know, really feel that calling to serve. And, you know, if we incentivize it just through money, I don't think it's going to get the best quality of police officers. Well, absolutely. And, and this is the thing, and I know a lot of, I know a lot of people don't understand this. I know most of the media that I talk to don't understand this at all, that we do have a very decentralized policing system in the United States on purpose. That's part right. of our constitution. You know, that's, that's, you know, the states are supposed to be the ones that uh, determine most of how their police are, 
are trained and certified and all that. And, and, you know, and I know that you, as the attorney general, that's something that you would really have to keep your eye on, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, right now, what we're seeing is, you know, this attack on police, it's, you know, it's really infested many of our institutions too. I mean, when you have, you know, even corporations feeling the need to openly criticize police officers for every single statement, right? Without getting the, I'm a prosecutor. You know, you, you get the facts out first before you make a determination. That's, that's what you do. You have to wait and see the evidence. But right now it's just, this all, all is a complete assault on the law enforcement community. And as attorney general, this is where incumbent upon me to use the office's bully pulpit and stand up for our law enforcement. And that's, you know, that's exactly what I'm going to do and meet with law enforcement and actually have the courage to defend them, even when the media is vilifying them and going after them and trying to make a martyr out of somebody. I love that. Can you explain to people what the relationship is between the police who arrest people and the prosecutor who actually brings that case to court? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very interesting, right? So the prosecutor kind of has the bird's eye view, but say the police, they're the ones on the ground. They're the ones making the arrest. And if they see that the crime has been committed, they write a report and it gets sent to the prosecutor's office for us to review because we're going to be the ultimate uh, determining factor of whether there's enough evidence to bring uh, a criminal case against the defendant. And if there is, then it gets sent to a grand jury or it gets uh, to a preliminary hearing, which is in front of a judge. And at that point, you know, this is the, the grand jury is basically a, a citizens determine whether there's more evidence than not that a crime was committed. Um, so at that point, you know, it's, it's complicated, but, you know, to simplify it, you know, it starts all, you know, the bottom floor is the police and then the mid tier is going to be the prosecutors and ultimately the decision is left up to citizens, right, in the grand jury or a judge to determine whether to prosecute the case. And if there is enough evidence at that point, then what you think of typical law and order style, which, the, you know, defense attorney, prosecutors taking this case up in court and with the jury of the peers and ultimately the sentencing then is going to be handed down by the judge here in Arizona. Now, we're hearing a lot of talk about prosecutors in the media these days um, and, and not necessarily for doing good things, um, but you alluded to it. There's these George Soros installed prosecutors in, in some of our urban areas, New York, Chicago, LA, Seattle, Portland, Austin, Texas, you know, I could go on and on. And, and those prosecutors are making decisions not to prosecute crimes that are on the books. And it, it, is there a relationship between that and the rise in crime that we're seeing uh, around the country? Clearly. I mean, there has to be consequences for these decisions and for this criminal behavior. But, you know, what's even in Arizona, it's happened too. I mean, some of these prosecutors, I mean, one of them in, in your home city in Tucson, I mean, that was Soros funded as well. But what's happening is even these smash and grabs that you see all across, right, in San Francisco, where they go in and break the glass of a store, raid it, basically, um, get a handful of items and leave. Right. I mean, in Arizona, a lot of the times the county attorneys, which is district attorneys in other states, a lot of time the county attorneys weren't taking up these cases either through bandwidth or you know whatnot. But the legislature, luckily, a few months ago last year, gave the attorney general um, power to start prosecuting these organized retail theft cases. So that's where, where it's the attorney general does have a lot more power to come in if they're empowered by the legislature. Uh, but, you're, you know, you're seeing this, you know, it's really sad with these, some of these prosecutors. And what I what I saw with the Kenosha incident, right? I mean, that was, it was kind of odd to see where we were kind of 
pro defense attorneys, right? It is unusual where that prosecutor, I mean, I can't believe he brought charges, you know, against him. So it was, it was, it was interesting to see the relationship that some of these Soros prosecutors are putting us in. I mean, in San Francisco, the prosecutor's office, there's essentially the defense firm of a lot of these of the criminals, right? And you're seeing this flight of prosecutors. The prosecutors get into this profession similar to how police officers get into their profession. You know, prosecutors aren't paid the most, you know, and you know, they're really doing it because they want to seek justice. And to see, you know, George Soros in this deliberate attempt by the radical left, he wrote her we wrote our laws it's 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 incredibly worrisome and we've got to push back against it and that and that is when you talk about morale i know that the morale of um young prosecutors who like you said come to the job to get um you know they want vindication and and they want justice for crime victims and yet just so everybody knows Prosecutors don't, you know, everybody's like, oh, you're a lawyer, you're rich. Um, uh, Prosecutors don't make a lot of money. I dealt with some that I was making more money as a senior detective than a new prosecutor. And uh, and it's hard work as well to put a case together. So I'm, you know, I'm glad that you're, you're thinking about that as well. Why do you think that, um, you know, a guy like George Soros and his open society, uh, you know, arm of his operation. Why do you think he has started to look at prosecutors in large city? What do you believe is the end game of that whole situation? Well, once you erode the public's trust of of our laws, I mean, our country's over. Our country is based off law. It's not like Europe where it's based off your blood or lineage. You know, if, if we get rid of our laws and the idea of the, our constitution, it's over. And right now, I mean, George Soros is even targeting me just four days ago, him and his uh, ADL group. They, they classified me as one of the most dangerous candidates running for office in 2022. I took it as a badge of honor, to be honest. But um, You should be proud of that. Oh, yeah. But I mean, that's what he, he's dumping 125 million into you know, what he's considering pro-democracy super PACs that, he's, that he has. But you know, it, it's it's frightening what's happening. And it's very orchestrated. And I keep telling people, you know, that Republicans have been asleep for a very, very, very long time while the radical left has overtaken every institution. I mean, for them to go after law enforcement, it's exceptionally damaging because at that point, what do we have left? When we no longer have police, you know, who's going to be in charge? I keep mentioning Gotham City. I really think that's the end game right now is this so that there's, you know, uh, when I mentioned Saudi Arabia, how they have national control over their police. I really think that may be the ultimate goal is to erode our local police forces into a nationalized police force. I think you may be right about that. And we're seeing we're seeing in some of the larger urban areas. Chicago's a good example around the country where things are kind of heading in that direction. And, uh, and, and, you know, when you look at that, what I want people to understand is you, if you live in the United States right now, you have local control over your law enforcement because you're electing the city councils and the mayors and the county boards and things like that. So you, the voter, ultimately control um, what kind of law enforcement you're, you're going to have and, and you can make changes as a voter. 
once we, you know, God forbid, if we ever go fully federalized in the United States and our in our law enforcement, that's not going to be the case. And and the American citizens are going to have very little control over how things happen. And you point out a country like Saudi Arabia, and and we could go on and on and on. Many other countries around this world, most countries actually right. have federalized law enforcement. And and what we saw during, you could, for example, look at uh, Australia right now and what law enforcement is doing there. They are helping the government over control their citizens. No one in America wants that and uh, or should want that. And I don't believe American law enforcement wants that as well. Right. But unfortunately, I do think there's a sizable chunk of Americans who do want that. I mean, what I, it's frightening, some of these polling that I see, that they want, you know, COVID restrictions for the police to go in and actually forcibly quarantine you. Actually, in, in uh, Utah, I don't know if you saw, but the Salt Lake Tribune and the editorial board, Betsy, it wasn't, the, it wasn't just some random op-ed, it was the editorial board of this, you know, the largest newspaper in Utah, called for the National Guard to actually institute locking people into their homes and actually denying them access to society because of COVID, uh, COVID vaccines, right? So, and that's what we saw all across the country. You know, I always talk about March, 2020 being a real big awakening period because when I mean, you saw some of these sheriffs who are really brave, who said they're not gonna implement and you know, enforce some of, these, some of these mandates, you know, some of the social distance. They just have the bandwidth and they didn't think it was constitutional anyway. So, you know, that, that's what we need more is courage right now. And right, you know, you mentioned Australia is a perfect example. And I keep mentioning to people, the only thing standing between us and Australia is our second amendment. And, you know, thank God for our you know, founding fathers to have the wisdom to put that amendment in there because without the second amendment, no other right is secured. You know what? And I know you're very strong on the second amendment. And I just want people to know, and then I want you to comment on this. We hear a lot in the media that, oh, police leaders, they, you know, police want more gun control. Now, in reality, and there have been many um, polls done on this, it's police leaders, primarily chiefs in, uh, in larger urban areas who say they want more gun control. Generally speaking, sheriffs do not. And generally speaking, line level police officers really like armed trained citizens, especially now when we're all, every department is so shorthanded and you know we can't be there in a second. So, so the Second Amendment, and that's one of the things about that I like about living in Arizona is our Second Second Amendment rights are very strong, but they are constantly under attack, aren't they? Completely. I mean, you see that with red flag laws too, with the implementation, trying to implement that in some other states. But you know, the best thing to happen with COVID, if there was a silver, silver lining, is what we were mentioning. It showed us that states actually have sovereignty. We have our rights, and we've actually been pushing back against the federal government's overreach in many of our in many of our lives. I mean, you just saw the Biden administration just yesterday or today announce that they've had this registry of gun ownership. I don't know if you saw that. I mean, it was yeah. just insane. And you know, that registry needs to be shredded. Because, you know, this, this is, we, we are a free people in a free society. And right now, I always talk about, you know, what's happened in the last two years, I really worry how much it's affected our country. And what happens the next year or two is really going to determine our country's future for the next century, possibly. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I, Abe, we've got just a couple of minutes left. One of the things 
I'd like you to do here is explain to people all the responsibilities, if you could do it in two minutes, uh, of a state attorney general. I don't think a lot of people really know all that the office of the attorney general really gets involved in. It's a lot, Betsy. And for me, the most important aspect of the attorney general, like I mentioned during the COVID lockdowns, I mean, you have the ability to stop some of the insanity, right? Stop with what's going on our border. I talked to former Virginia attorney general, Ken Cuccinelli, you know, about ways that the governor and attorney general could work hand in hand together to push back against the federal government. I mean, he was attorneys general that led the remain in Mexico policy to be reinstated, right? But, you know, there's other aspects of the attorney general's office, which includes in Arizona, Department of Child Service where, you know, that's a big part of the office as well. Um, there's also a civil component and a civil rights um, portion as well. But, the you know, we push back and some other AGs are going after big tech, which I want to focus on too, is uh, treating them as a public utility. So there, the AG's office is quite expansive um, and especially out here in Arizona. So there's a lot of avenues that me as an attorney general, you know, I'm bold. I'm not beholden to anybody or anything except the constitutions of the United States and Arizona and the people of Arizona. So I, I'm going to start pushing back because right now what's going on in our country is insanity. And we need a strong attorney general along with a strong governor to finally reclaim our state sovereignty. Well, I tell you, I'm, I'm so excited about your candidacy and I'm so excited about your support of American law enforcement. Abe, where can people find out more about you, your background, your candidacy? Where can they find you? Yeah, it's you know too easy. It's, you can go to abeforag.com, abeforag.com. You can spell it out for, or you can use the number four. I got both of them. So abeforag.com. And then on Twitter, you know, as you may know, Betsy, I'm pretty active. I control my own Twitter. Um, they can find me at um, Abe, you know, the, uh, the Abraham Hamaday on Twitter. So. Abraham in my last name, Hamaday, H-A-M-A-D-E-H. That's outstanding. Abe, I cannot thank you for spending time with us today. And thank you for all you're doing for us here in Arizona and for our nation. And if you'd like more information about the National Police Association, visit us at nationalpolice.org. Last year, law enforcement officers were involved in hundreds of thousands of use of force incidents. A use of force incident is when an officer must use nonverbal tactics to gain control of a dangerous situation. Put the knife on the ground. In many cases, officers have no choice but to use force when a suspect doesn't comply with a lawful order. Use of force is always ugly. No one likes it, especially police officers. Together, we can help de-escalate these dangerous encounters. Help police officers by complying with their lawful orders. Don't attack, attempt to disarm, or flee from an officer. Use of force is an officer's last option. Most incidents can be avoided by not resisting arrest. If you feel you've been wrongfully detained by a police officer, then seek a legal solution after the encounter has been resolved. Let's keep everyone safe. Comply now and complain later.